the fastest car in the universe, and what happens when we die. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to the third episode of Ask Science Mike, a weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Man, you guys are giving me some great questions to work with, and I'm at the Sundance Film Festival this week, and I've had an opportunity to meet some of the listeners of this program and have some great conversations about your experiences. With that in mind, there's some wonderful questions this week, and let's get it started. Our first question this week comes from Corey Pitts on Twitter, and he asked, if you were traveling in a car at the speed of light and you turn your headlights on, would they work? Now, this is an interesting and common science question uh, that has one major, major, major obstacle, and that's you can't go the speed of light. You just can't do it. Why? Well, let's look at a couple of scenarios. Um, You've got your car. You've got a really really fast car. In fact, it's the fastest car in the universe, and it can accelerate from zero to 99% the speed of light in a millisecond. It's a really fast car. Uh, It would require an unfathomable amount of energy to run that engine, but forget about that for a second. You've got your car, and uh, you you pull out of the driveway, and you get on the interstate, and you just, man, you put the pedal to the metal, and your car accelerates rapidly towards light speed. And some bad stuff happens really fast as your car, in its immense acceleration capacity, approaches light speed. Well, first of all, your body would not be able to withstand the forces of acceleration. Um, Long before you got anywhere near light speed, uh, your car would be punched. But before that could even happen, if the car accelerated quickly enough, the compression waves of your car pressing into the atmosphere would cause nuclear fusion. The oxygen and nitrogen in the air would fuse with the atoms in the front of your car. And we understand when nuclear fusion happens, a lot of energy is released in the form of x-rays and gamma rays, and they're going to cause all kind of damage to the atmosphere and to your vehicle. And you're just going to, in fractions of a second, billionths of a second, you're not going to have a car anymore you're going to have a ball of plasma accelerating across the surface of our planet at near light speed. It would cause an immense explosion, like a massive, massive nuclear bomb. So you can't go the speed of light in a car in our atmosphere. So let's remove some of those limitations. We're, now we're going to make our car have a... a oxygen tanks and take it out of the Earth's atmosphere. So now we have a space car. Still a car. It's got headlights. uh, And it has that same incredible engine that lets it accelerate to a high fraction of light speed in just a tiny fraction of a second. And now we're also going to give it some ability uh, with unknown technology to sort of mitigate the inertial forces that what acceleration would do to your body. We're going to let you survive the trip the acceleration towards light speed in your lifetime. Okay? So we're, we've got some major physics miracles happening here. 
you still can't go light speed because your car has mass. No matter what kind of magical technology we put in the car, your car cannot go light speed. Now, you may wonder why, if, if the speed of light is, a, say, 186,000 miles a second, why can't you just go 187,000 miles per second? And when you think that way, you're imagining time as this universal constant. But Einstein's theory of relativity tells us that space and time are both part of the same fabric, and that fabric is distorted and warped by gravity and by velocity. There's no such thing as absolute time, depending on how deep a gravity well you're in or how fast you're moving relative to something else. Your reference frame of time is different. The passage of time is different. And this is really well proven. Uh, Our GPS satellites have to accommodate for both general and special relativity to understandings uh, that Einstein used uh, to get his head around gravity and help the rest of us understand physics. Um, we have to accommodate for both of those things in order for GPS to work, right? It's crazy. Uh, gravity and velocity come into play with our GPS system. Um, and, and here's why. Because of this time dilation effect, if you, as an object with mass, were to somehow accelerate beyond light speed from your own local reference frame, you would arrive at your destination before you left. You'd be traveling through time. You would be breaking causality, and the universe wouldn't work. So you can't go the speed of light. So let's imagine instead uh, that our car uh, just goes a really high fraction of light speed, like 99% the speed of light. What would that look like as you're zooming through space and you turn the headlights on? Well, in the car, everything's normal. If you look in the rearview mirror, you see yourself normally. Now, this is sort of interesting, right? We have to talk a second about speed. Speed is relative. If I'm on a train going 40 miles an hour and I roll a tennis ball forward on the train at five miles an hour, how fast is that tennis ball moving? Well, from the reference frame of the train, the tennis ball is going five miles an hour. From the reference frame of the Earth's surface, that tennis ball is going 45 miles an hour, right? If I were to roll the tennis ball in the opposite direction, the reference frame of the ground, you got a 35-mile-an-hour tennis ball, right? Or 5-mile-an-hour on the train's reference frame. Light is not like that. The speed of light is a constant. No matter what emits light, it's always going to go 186,000 miles per second or so in a local reference frame. Always. Always, 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 always. It's a constant. It's such a constant that E equals MC squared. That C stands for the speed of light, and it is the constant upon which physics rests. So, you can't go light speed, but you can go fractional light speed. And so, from your own reference frame, as your car is going 99% the speed of light, and you look around inside, everything's normal. Everything looks fine. The problem is, you don't see anything outside of the windows. Not a thing. Because everything is coming towards you at a very high fraction of the speed of light. And that's going to cause Doppler effects, Doppler compression on the light that's coming from stars and planets and and anything in the front of this car. 
So, uh, you know, a, a Doppler effect, if something's moving towards you, it shifts towards the blue, the frequency from your perspective. Uh, the frequencies get smaller. They get you know higher frequencies. The, the actual wavelength is smaller. And so visible light is going to shift into UV and even higher. And a funny thing about car windows, they're opaque to UV light. UV light can't pass through the glass in car windows. So you're not going to see anything. Even if you had a camera that could take pictures in ultraviolet, they'd see nothing. Now let's put some special windows on the car that let UV light in. What would your camera now see? The objects would appear compressed. They would appear, uh, you know, odd. They would also be rotated uh, thanks to some math that, frankly, I don't understand. <laughs> so your, your headlights would work, but they wouldn't give you any meaningful information. They would continue to just blast out of the front of the car at light speed. They'd go. Those photons would bounce off other things, be just fine. The problem is um, everything would be Doppler compressed, and your headlights wouldn't actually be useful to say nothing of the fact that you're using an unfathomable amount of energy that could be put to better use, say, powering the entire planet for a very, very long time. Hey, Mike. My name's Kevin Steinhardt, and I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. Um, I had a question today about prayer um, and how you view prayer as someone who is scientifically minded. Um, growing up, probably much like you, uh, were raised uh, in the evangelical church. I believed that prayer, um, you know, was us talking to God, but that God would respond to us and actually was would heal people in certain cases, um, especially if we believed, if we would believe and not doubt that God could heal people, then he would. Um, and so uh, growing up and finding out that maybe it's not as clean cut and as easy as that, um, I kind of... Uh, question these days, and I'm more skeptical of prayer. Um, and especially, you know, when I read the research and see things um, about that people who are prayed for, for example, go into remission from cancer at the same rate as people who are not prayed for, or it doesn't matter if there's a thousand people praying for someone um, that they have just as likely a chance to heal as someone that doesn't have anyone praying for them. Um, it's hard for me to uh, grapple my old views of prayer with um, you know, being somewhat scientifically minded. Um, and so I wanted to kind of see how you view prayer. Do you think it can heal people? Um, do you think that it does ever heal people? Um, and I know you kind of lean toward a more meditative style of prayer. Um, and so is, I guess my question is, do you view prayer as something that, um, that does have an impact on things or just that it can impact our minds. You know, if we meditate and view um, God as a God of love and think about him as a God of love, um, that that's more what prayer should be. Um, so thanks a lot. I love what you're doing. Really appreciate uh, you listening to my question. Thanks. Three episodes in, and we've gotten a question about prayer in every single one. <laughs> How wild is that? Um, it doesn't surprise me. We all think about prayer. And we all long for a connection to something greater than ourselves. I know many friends who are atheists and skeptics who admit openly to praying, but they don't believe in God. They just have an impulse to reach out somehow. Some consider a moment of weakness. Others uh, simply consider it part of the human experience. Of course, I'm not an atheist, uh, but I do have complicated thoughts on prayer. Um, 
If you know my story, you know that studying prayer, which has for so long been the foundation of my relationship with God and my faith, uh, is what wrecked me. Um, because you're right, when we scientifically study prayer, we don't see any evidence that God is intervening on the behalf of people who pray. Uh, every time we've done a study and we do what you do in a good study and you have control groups and then you have groups under different experimental criteria, there is no benefit demonstrated to people who are being prayed for versus those who are not. That's good science. Those studies are well-designed. Well, bummer. What's the point of praying? I mean, you know, there's this idea, does God intervene in our world or not? Um, you know, some days I think God probably is kind of an animating force and that I merely project my own uh, anthropomorphized experience onto God. But then other days, the ways that I experience God are so personal and so profound that I'm absolutely unscientifically but personally convinced that God is a being who is listening and responding. Um, and how do we live in that tension? Well, first, let's consider a few things. One, we know that prayer is good for the brain. We know that. Prayer is a healthy activity for human brains. Studies have consistently shown that it's good for mental health, for cognition, uh, to pray towards a loving God. And in my own experience, prayer makes me feel connected to God, and studies validate that. People who pray report feeling closer to God. They report that their belief is deeper, and that the more often you pray, the more significant that feeling of connection to God is. Now, I've also found in my own experience that prayer motivates me to act. When I pray for someone who is undergoing difficult circumstances, I'm constantly finding ways that I can reach out to them and help, that I can be connected to this divine sort of force I experience in prayer uh, and, and be a part of creating more peace in the world. Prayer encourages me to act. So I absolutely pray towards God as if God is a being who can intervene in my life. And that surprises people because I have such a, a mystical approach to God. But I also lean heavily into the story of Jesus Christ and into the Christian tradition and understanding of God. And in all those stories, God is seen as active in our world. And in my own life, unscientifically, but personally, I have experienced the intervention of God. In fact, at this point in my life, it seems as if most of the things that are happening are a part of some divine appointment. The people I meet, the opportunities I have, uh, many of them seem effortless. They seem to just sort of float my way. It's not scientific. It convinces no one. But it's powerful to me. And in fact, I'd like to tell you a story on the subject of healing. Uh, I have a really bad back, and I am the kind of person who likes to eat a lot and is not a big fan of physical exercise. So the doctors told me, because I have this like degenerative spinal disc condition, that the best thing I could do to avoid back pain, even more powerful than surgery, would be to lose 30 pounds and to do exercises that strengthen my core muscle groups. Well, those are like my least favorite exercises. 
So I got busy. I started traveling to speak all the time. I started working hard, making podcasts and and writing my blog and working on a book. And instead of losing 30 pounds, I gained 15. And instead of becoming more active, I became much more sedentary. And my back pain returned with a vengeance, uh, really like a pair of pliers in my lower back, to the point I limped and hobbled. Well, one Sunday morning, I was hobbling in the church, and my pastor, Betsy, if you've listened to Liturgist podcast, you know Betsy, uh, saw me hobbling. She asked what was wrong, and I said, my back hurt. And she reached for me to pray for me. And I said, Betsy, no, no, it's okay. Why? Because I'm cynical about the idea that God intervenes and heals people. (laughs) But as Betsy placed her hand on my back and said a quick prayer of healing, I felt a tremendous warmth and um, suddenly no pain. Now, could I have had a spike of adrenaline? Could I have been, you know, a, a psychosomatic response to an empathetic connection with another human being? Absolutely. But the fact is, the pain stayed gone the rest of the day and has continued to subside since. Uh, so whether that was some phenomenon between people or God intervening, I don't know. All I know is that through prayer, I found healing. And I think that's a lot of what faith is about, is leaning into these mysteries. The studies continue to show, and we have to admit it's good science, that on a a large scale, prayer does not appear to produce action for others, but somehow it still produces action in ourselves. It promotes good health, but in some other way, seems to be a force of, of healing. Now, As a guy named Science Mike, that's not a scientific promise. I'm just sharing with you uh, some stories from my own experiences. Take them for what they will. Um, But because of these myriad of experiences I've had through prayer, I continue to pray to a God who listens. Hey, Science Mike, I have a question about antimatter. I was reading A Brief History of Time, by Stephen Hawking and he mentioned how black holes seemed to emit particles but they weren't actually emitting particles what was happening was there was pairs of matter and antimatter that were spontaneously separating and one pair would get sucked into the black hole and the other would be expelled so my question is did I read that wrong or if matter and antimatter are supposed to annihilate when they combined How can they spontaneously separate later on? Thank you. So a black hole is a special kind of object in which the laws of physics get weird. Effectively, a black hole is an object so massive that uh, it becomes so dense that atoms collapse upon themselves. And and gravity, the gravity well of this object becomes so deep, it distorts space-time to such a degree that nothing can escape its gravity well, not even light. Hence, a black hole. Now, black holes aren't always black. Uh, they're, they're generally in the vicinity of some traditional matter, which is being pulled into the black hole, and that creates something called an accretion disk. And that accretion disk, as its uh, particles are accelerated to very, very high velocities, uh, become very energetic, and they can emit all sorts of energy, including x-rays, very, very powerful stuff. Uh, But the black hole itself is black, except for Hawking radiation. That's the phenomenon you're describing. The larger a black hole is, the less Hawking 
radiation it has, but all black holes, if they are not absorbing matter, evaporate. Now, they'll take a long, long time to evaporate. Hawking radiation is a quantum phenomenon, and as such, uh, works very slowly on something like a black hole. How long? Uh, well, something like for a, you know, a typically sized black hole, uh, 10 to the 61st power times the age of the universe for a black hole to evaporate from Hawking radiation. But what the heck is Hawking radiation? Well, empty space has something called vacuum fluctuation. This is part of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And effectively, uh, a, a way of thinking of that, a model would be that in empty space, virtual particles can appear. Now, they always appear in pairs, a particle and an antiparticle. Normal matter uh, has a certain charge. Protons have a positive charge. Electrons have a negative charge. That's conventional matter. Well, in antimatter, you have something called positron. That's a positively charged electron. And when the two meet, they annihilate each other and release energy. That's what matter and antimatter do. The same thing happens with virtual particles. Okay? Now, what happens is in the space around the event horizon of a black hole, you have these uh, vacuum fluctuations. You have these virtual particles. And they are amplified by the intense gravity of the black hole. They become real particles. And sometimes one of the particles escapes. Now, to an outside observer, that would look like the black hole emitting a particle. That means the particle that fell back into the black hole must have negative energy. It means it must annihilate some of the mass of the black hole in order to protect the conservation of energy. It's not that matter and antimatter are separating. It's that the weirdness of black hole and singularity is doing strange things to the laws of physics. Hawking radiation. Virtual particles made real. <laughs> By the gravity of a black hole. Yeah, totally weird. I get it. But that's a great book. A Brief History of Time is totally worth the effort to read through and digest. It's one of my favorites. AJ on Twitter asks, how does science respond to the idea of an afterlife? From that view, can there be a heaven or a hell? Science is not about what there can be. Science is about how probable something is. In science, we place confidence in a belief that is proportional to the amount of evidence we have to support that belief. Now, how much physical evidence is there for the afterlife? None at all. Most humans believe there's an afterlife. Science validates that. But in terms of an actual afterlife, we have absolutely no physical evidence that I'm aware of that lets us know something happens after we die. How do we cope with that? Well, let's talk about uh, what science tells us about death and dying. As science understands it, your consciousness emerges from a set of feedback loops. Your brain constructs a model of reality. It responds to the environment. And from millions and millions of feedback loops in your brain 
comes a picture of reality, an awareness of self. And death, when your biological processes stops, your consciousness ceases. Now, everything we understand about brain death uh, is actually quite beautiful. <laughs> uh, our brains shut down from the outside in, as I've read. Uh, you know, As your body tries to preserve resources, it starts by sort of turning the lights off at the outer layers and you lose your sense of physical place and proximity as your, your parietal lobe um, runs out of fuel and uh, your visual cortex starts to shut down and uh, that could very well uh, produce a sensation uh, much like a tunnel of light as the aperture of your visual process reduces to a point and then halts. Now what's on the other side of that tunnel of light in brain science is your memories. Those are deeper. Uh, the parts of your brain that coordinate memory function are deeper. So it's, it's very plausible in science that you could have this brief and conscious journey through people and places you've known and been, that your life could flash before your eyes or that you could perceive people on the other side of a tunnel as your consciousness fades away. It's also interesting that pain, pain comes from our brain. And as death happens, the ability to perceive pain goes away. Now, after that, what? Nothing. Nothing in science is after that. A state of perfect and absolute peace and an unawareness of self. Now, some remnant of your soul, some part of who you are persists if you had children the patterns that created your biology persist in the DNA that you passed on. The ideas that you left in the world, the things you taught people persist. And a very accurate model of the way you see the world exists in the brains of people who knew you well. Have you ever had a conversation with a loved one who's passed? Have you ever known what they would say in that moment? That's because a model of them lives in your brain. And that's some form of an afterlife. So I start by saying the secular and scientific view of death and dying is not terrifying. It's not horrifying. And if that's all there is, so be it. But my experiences with God lead me to hope for more. <laughs> I hope that there is some reunification, some fulfillment of a promise on the other side. But science does not speak to that. That's a hope of my heart. That's a hope that rests in my soul. I can't prove that. It's not scientifically validated, but it does bring me peace. So I'm completely comfortable with the scientific view that there is no afterlife that we can prove and no reason to place confidence in that belief. And I am equally comfortable leaning into a hope that my maker has a plan and is waiting for me on the other side. Whatever happens, I'll be happy to find out or I won't be disappointed. Well, there it goes. Another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books. You know, this week I'm at the Sundance Film Festival with the Windrider Forum and the John Templeton Foundation, we've been talking about 
a really interesting idea about how people approach spirituality today and it's something called the New Copernicans. Uh, keep an eye out on MikeMcCard.com or on my social media presences because we're doing a series of videos to explore that concept more. And I think they're going to come out really well. Some really incredible people have been involved. In terms of today's episode, there are show notes on the website, AskScienceMike.com. I will have a link related to every question on the show uh, with more information, insight, things that you can explore. Again, that's on AskScienceMike.com. Now, remember, guys, this is your show. I have no editorial plan. I'm not doing any shaping. Your questions create the program. And to that note, I'd love to have more recorded questions. You guys have been great. You've sent me thousands and thousands of emails uh, with questions. But the show's much more interesting if uh, there's other voices involved. So if you record on your iPhone, uh, you know, with whatever you've got around, that's fine. You can post that to Twitter. You can put it on SoundCloud or YouTube. Just use the hashtag AskScienceMike, and I'll see it. Um, if you want to send me a message uh, directly to Send me a link as well. That's fine. But I do look at the Ask Science Mike hashtag. I'd love to talk to you more about this episode. We've got a Twitter handle, at Ask Science Mike, for the program. Or if you can spell my name, you can come have a chat with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Mike.McCarg. And I do want to say on the note of Q&A and interacting with you, I would love to come to your event. Uh, I do travel. I enjoy that. There's nothing I love more than talking to people about science and faith in person. So if you go to AskScienceMike.com and look in the upper right-hand corner, there's a button that says Book Mike. You can get more information about what it's like to bring me to an event, and I would love to be there. Thanks for your help with this week's episode, and uh, looking forward to next week already. See you later, guys. Mm-hmm.